The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices has the beautiful Passport hardware wallet. Make sure you get your Bitcoin into self-custody today. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia. We cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Today, I have Stacy Waleko. She is an open source developer and educator in the Bitcoin space. We're really lucky to have her today. She's going to break down some Bitcoin technical topics and teach us how Bitcoin works under the hood and any potential improvements to Bitcoin over the near and medium term. Stacy, thanks for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So I want to start with your background. How did you get into Bitcoin development? What all I know you've been in several roles in Bitcoin development. So can you just describe some of those and how did you end up where you are today, which is contributing to the protocol at large? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Stacey Waleko. I'm an open source Bitcoin developer and educator. I've been working professionally in this space for almost five years now, which is kind of crazy to think. Most recently, I was at Casa managing a lot of their backend systems for their flagship multi-sig offering. And then prior to that, before anything in Bitcoin, I was in the enterprise blockchain space, which is how, how I got here. <laughs> I think all roads lead to Bitcoin. Um, so I've been doing software engineering for a while now, but my current role in open source, I still feel pretty new, um, though I, it, I, I've learned so much working just in open source and I'm excited to chat about it. At this moment in time, I have a bunch of projects up in the air. I'm currently a co-organizer for my local BitDevs meetup in Boston. I'm currently working on an issue in Bitcoin Core issue 26337 to add more, uh, to expose more network message statistics over RPC. And then I spend the rest of my time on educational content. I'm currently a contributor to a project called Saving Satoshi, which is kind of like a video game to teach you about Bitcoin. And then I have like one other unreleased educational project as well that's designed to make Bitcoin education more accessible, um, easier for people to understand and a little bit cute. Well, excellent. Well, we support all of your edu uh, educational efforts and really people that are trying to explain Bitcoin are at the center of this adoption story because in order to grow the technology, you have to explain to people what it is. So the educational effort is part of what we do and part of our mission. But today I wanna to focus more on the development side and your involvement with the Bitcoin protocol. So let's start with what is a BIP? Uh, BIP, it stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. So what is a BIP and how are BIPs at the really at the center of what you do today in terms of your goals for getting updates added to Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. So a BIP is, as you mentioned, Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. There is a repo on GitHub called, I think it's just called BIPs, where you can go and they actually have a BIP to define the BIP process, but it's really a place where we are able to aggregate technical proposals about Bitcoin. And it's really nice because it's easy to lose information about a proposal if you've only seen it on the mailing list or if it doesn't have like a nice 
number that you can use to refer to it. And I think a question that comes up is like, how often do we see these? And it's helpful to look at the process of how a BIP comes to life because it's not necessarily hard to propose a BIP. It just takes work. Um, and so step one is you want, you have an idea and you, you got to introduce a draft BIP to the Bitcoin dev mailing list. And at that point, you don't give it a number. You just, just throw your idea out there. And the, the great thing about this is it gives the community a chance to raise concerns, but also to let you know if your idea has already been proposed, if there's some history that you might have missed, because it's, you really need to do your homework before introducing it because um, you don't want to waste anyone else's time. But let's assume it's, it's, it's a novel idea. Um, the next step is hopefully you're going to have some back and forth discussion on the mailing list. Uh, this may result in some revisions, um, but then you can you can go ahead and open up your PR into the BIP repo. And at that point, the BIP editor after review will give you a number. Now there's a little bit of a checklist here. You need to follow a very specific format that is defined in BIP2, and the idea needs to be possible to implement. And so oftentimes what we see is a lot of really nice contributors will work through the code for their BIP ahead of time. And so by the time they propose it to the mailing list, they actually have code that proves to them that it works, proves to everyone else that it works, and they have this really nice set of notes that they've developed during the course of that process to inform the actual BIP document. So after that, um, there may be some copy editing involved, but then you know the, the, the BIP editor merges it and it's published to the repo. But I do like not not everything. <laughs> there are definitely some some rules here. And I, I opened up BIP2 and I have a quote. It says the BIP editors will not unreasonably reject a BIP. Reasons for rejecting a BIP include duplication of effort, disregard for formatting rules, being too unfocused or too broad, being technically unsound, not providing proper motivation or addressing backwards compatibility or not keeping with the Bitcoin philosophy. So that seems like a long list, but if you kind of break all those down, they, they sound pretty reasonable to me. And then another quote I wanted to bring up comes from an interview that Bitcoin developer and maintainer Andrew Chow did with Jameson Lop about a year ago. And it, it goes something like, just because something's in the BIPs repo and it has a BIP number does not mean it's a good idea. It does not mean it's gonna be implemented. And I think that's like, a great way to just stay grounded and, and, and keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but I, I think another important thing to talk about is like, how does this stuff get accepted? How does it get deployed? And the reality is there's there's no official process. There's no BIP committee anywhere. There's no, there's no guidelines. Um, it's really on the BIP author or the supporters to champion this BIP. And that means you've got to spark interest. You have to rally support around it. And um, this is even also mentioned in BIP2. It says the BIP author is responsible for building consensus within the community and documenting dissenting opinions. And so after you do all that, though, the truth is, like, you also have to be patient. Sometimes some BIPs sit around for like six months before they get attention or longer. Um, and at the end of the day, that may not be enough still. And, and that's really hard. Um, that can be frustrating and it can definitely lead to burnout. 
And so we talk about the process of adding BIPs to Bitcoin and that once a BIP is proposed, you have a certain hurdle, which is, you know, is it technically sound? Is it worthwhile? Has it been done before? Then once you get past that and you've proved that, okay, it's, it's, it's a decent idea, actually getting it added to the Bitcoin network and broadly downloaded to nodes around the world is its own lengthy process and somewhat political. If we're interpreting what you're saying, you have to go out and campaign to get this idea. So my question, my follow-up question here to you is how many devs are we talking about and how do we think about the decentralization of Bitcoin when we have developers that are obviously influential? I don't want to assign the word gatekeeper, but let, like as a, as a descriptive term, you have certain developers that are going to be gatekeepers in terms of promoting ideas and getting ideas to be broadly disseminated to others. So talk about, we know Bitcoin is decentralized, right? So how decentralized is it from this BIP developer standpoint? Are we talking about 10 devs that hold the keys here? Are we talking about a thousand devs that really work in a consensus or is it somewhere in between and describe that process to people that don't understand how Bitcoin actually gets changed. If it is truly decentralized, not a company, not a CEO, no foundation and no official uh, maintainer of no single maintainer of the code. Yeah, that is a great question and I'm going to do my best to answer it. It's a really hard question. So in terms of the BIP process, there are only one or two BIP editors who have access to do the merging. Um, it's it's really on them to, and they've done a good job of not being very partisan about it. And I've got some examples that we can talk about later of just like BIPs that make it in that just don't seem like good ideas. Um, there, and another thing is there are currently only five maintainers in the Bitcoin core repository. There are only five people that can press that merge button. Um, this, this has come up in the past, especially over the last year, we've, we've lost a lot in the last year, year and a half or so, uh, they maintainers will generally maintainers don't see it on themselves to make a decision if something is to be uh, merged or not. They, they take a look at who has reviewed it. Um, and I'm sure they take into account also the quality of the reviewers, like a hundred people who have never made a contribution to Bitcoin core don't necessarily hold as much weight as five people who have been active developers for the last five years. So I think it's, it's fair to ask that. Um, but when you do hop in and look at that code, it's it, no one's trying to do anything that is going to like upset everyone else and go against consensus. Like we, we, I, I don't really feel like, I mean, I haven't, I've only been in this space, um, for about five years, I, I, I don't think I've seen an abuse of power really, but I think if that were to happen, you would see the community react very quickly to it. Yeah, and it really is important to explain to people that don't see the technical side of Bitcoin that yes, there are five people who hold the keys to actually hitting the merge button. That doesn't mean those are the five people that are designing the updates. Yes. Right. This, it's, yep. a di it's an important distinction. The yes. people designing the updates are different than people that are reviewing the code that are different than people that are testing the code. 
and the maintainers have to be aware of the reputation of people along the line that whole way. And part of the Bitcoin ethos and philosophy is to move things incredibly slowly and to not change Bitcoin fundamentally ever and to change things that only perhaps improve the process, but with full backwards compatibility. And of course, maintaining the ideas around proof of work and its supply schedule as uh, set in stone. So there are certain things that are set in stone and, but it is still, there are human beings involved. And I think that that's an important thing to just explain to people that we call, we call this a decentralized network. Um, and that there is an algorithm that the, the people running Bitcoin nodes are, are employing and make, making sure that every time that they add a block, that they're reinforcing that algorithm, but within that whole construct. There are human beings and there are ways for Bitcoin to improve. That's what the I in BIP means. And for that reason, Bitcoin can stand the test of time better than if it was just a code released by Satoshi. We know that the original code itself had some pretty serious bugs that looking back would have brought down the system uh, entirely if they hadn't been fixed before there were more than a few dozen actual users in Bitcoin. Um, so I'll let you follow up there before I ask any, uh, any other questions. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love the way that you summarize that and criticism that Bitcoin has seen is like, oh, it moves so slowly. Well, the reality is if you're an asset that's securing hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you can't afford to make a mistake. And the contributors and the maintainers, they take this very, very seriously. Um, it, it, it's their jobs. And I think that a side effect of that also is they're very selective about their time. So just going back to BIPs and ideas and how do things get deployed, um, we have to be very cognizant of what we're asking from the developers and from the community because they're like, they're just making sure that everything is stable, like first and foremost, before they can do anything on top of that. Can you talk about the Bitcoin Core Devs uh, survey uh, that came out recently from Chainco Labs? Yes, I can. Um, I have a quote. Where is it? Um, sorry. Oh, Take okay. your time. Here, here's the interesting quote. Um, okay, so every every year, Jonas from Chaincode Labs runs a survey that he gives to all Bitcoin Core developers just to kind of get a pulse, like um, what what areas. Did, did we have wins in? What areas were frustrating? And um, where can we improve? And, and, and how happy are you? And um, it, something that stood out to me was this quote, the volume of low value refactoring PRs is on the rise while the review of complex projects and PRs is very scarce. And it kind of just made me think of some things that I'm learning in my journey of Bitcoin Core where um, again, going to what you're asking the community of, um, some things I've noticed is like drive by PRs are not pull requests are not appreciated whatsoever, especially if they lack a clear description or there's no like notable gain from them, they'll get shut off really quickly. And then another thing I've noticed too, is refactoring can be really tricky. And this kind of goes to what we were talking about, how Bitcoin moves slowly. The, the reality is that refactoring is highly risky. 
when you, as the complexity of a code base grows, and we're talking about a code base that has been live for over 14 years now, so do the chances of you like pulling a little thread over here and unraveling something like way out over there that you thought was completely unrelated. And that may not come up until months, years down the line. Um, so can you define refactoring for us, please? Yeah, for sure. Um, this is a term that's used quite a bit in software engineering. It's basically tidying up, restructuring, reorganizing. Um, a lot of times when like over the years, you'll notice some changes that like you didn't like the structure you had originally started with. Maybe it's even just a folder structure. You wish you broke things up differently. And the benefit is once you do you do refactor some code, it can be a lot easier to move forward. It can be a lot easier for new people to come on board. But like I said earlier, it's it's almost like taking like like a big knot and untangling it. And you're not always sure what you're gonna get yourself into. And then um, I had another thing I noted from the survey, which is, um, they're kind of contradictory, but um, when areas asked about areas of frustration, answers included unclear information on what changes may be accepted into Bitcoin Core, varying attention that certain PRs can get from the wider community, and lack of focus on the important stuff. So I think this ties into what we were talking about, about how do BIPs get deployed. Like, it just goes to show, even within this community, um, it can be hard to get meaningful changes across the finish line. And I think this also speaks to what you were saying about how maintainers aren't, they usually aren't the people that are writing these proposals or review, sometimes they review them. I mean, there's definitely some crossover there, but um, that that's not the job of a maintainer. That, that would be the contributor side of whatever that person's role is. And, um, but then like also, which I thought was funny is that out of that same survey came a couple of wins, which were, Good features merged or proposed. Velocity at which PRs got merged. So that feels contradictory, but that also feels like it's in alignment with the decentralized nature of Bitcoin. Like the more I spend time here, the more I believe in Conway's law, which is that the communication structure of an organization matches the system structure. And I think it's that the, the communication informs the system, but it just, it just feels like really in line in Bitcoin. And the, you bring up an important point here that Bitcoin has been alive for 14 years and the code base is working. Bitcoin processes trillions of dollars worth of transactions every year on its blockchain. And the market value of Bitcoin on a longer term average is in a steady increasing state. And so the market is telling us that this working code base has value and increasing value as it increases in its adoption by the world's people. So if we have that as our base scenario of how Bitcoin exists, is it, is it the wise thing for developers and, and the whole community at large to keep this process incredibly slow moving and actually difficult to add changes. Do you see that as the case that it's better to just not change it much at all? Or should we still have our foot on the gas pedal 
either somewhat or all the way in, tr in trying to make Bitcoin the best it can be? Because there is a fine line. I don't know where I stand on that. Uh, obviously, I can't read or write the code, so I'm not the best one to to opine. But in my in my common sense, it tells me to try to not change too much, right? As it already is working and you don't need Bitcoin to improve from where it is today to get the next 10 to 100 people. But do you need to improve to get the next million and billion people? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, for sure. I think this topic of ossification has come up quite a bit recently, especially in the full RBF debate that was happening last winter. Um, I Obviously, it's a balance. I do. There definitely is a shift, though, right now. And we've seen this over the last few years where development efforts on layer two solutions are, are growing. And something that we have to consider is one, it's really hard to develop a layer two when the layer one is still moving. But two, layer two might need some things implemented in layer one so that we can do more things in layer two. And so I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not for like ossification right now. Like we need to stop everything. Bitcoin works just fine as it is. Um, but I am in favor of some of these uh, more thoughtful discussions about like, I have this idea, where should I put it? Maybe it's a good idea to not put it on layer one. Okay, I'm gonna put it at like a layer higher. What do I need for that? And um, I, I think that's really healthy. And um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a tough question though. It, it, it's really hard, but I do feel like the spectrum is kind of moving in the other direction. Oh, and I also wanted to mention just the job, like even if there was ossification today and there were no new changes going into Bitcoin Core, people still have to maintain the code base. People still have to be in there to patch security fixes. People still have to be in there to make library upgrades, um, like that kind of stuff. Just, I think there was, don't quote me on it, but there was a situation where like we needed to update the version of Tor. Like somebody has to do that. So I don't think you're going to see any slowdown in Bitcoin development. It just be, might be like the nature of the certain features that are getting in. Sure. And, you know, the, the quickest history lesson I can introduce here to our audience is that in 2017, we had an update called Segregated Witness. And only because of that update could we launch the Lightning Network in the early months of 2018, a paper that was written years before and required the SegWit update itself in Bitcoin at the layer one level of Bitcoin. So Lightning Network exists because of this process and getting the actual transaction types in Bitcoin to change. One of the more fundamental changes in Bitcoin's young history was the 2017 SegWit update and Lightning Network only exists because of that today. So shutting down development itself isn't, in theory, um, the elastic, a lasting solution. And there's no way to know right now what that point in time is that we need to cut it off. So um, it's important to remember that this process of improving Bitcoin, right? That's the topic of this talk today here with Stacy. The improvement of Bitcoin itself is important. Right. It, just because Bitcoin has value and just because it's approaching its 800,000th block doesn't mean you shut down the progress itself just because it's working. There are always things to tweak and it's how Bitcoin will continue to outcompete other forms of currency, whether they're digital 
or traditional. Um, so I want to remind our audience about that. Now you are involved in the, on the development side, the P2P layer, right? This is the concept of that people have nodes. And in order to talk to other nodes, they're using a messaging network between themselves. It doesn't actually go through any central counterparty or central server. So what are, what are, can you explain to us what you're doing there? What are you excited about um, specifically on that side of things? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it just so happens that my particular issue that I'm working on is to gather network message statistics. So basically statistics about what's going on in the P2P network. And um, I've, I've just learned so much about it in the last year or so. It's, it's really cool and I'm excited to share what I've learned. Um, I think like one of the biggest surprises is like, hey, you can have different kinds of connection types. So instead of your normal full relay connection, there are also connection types between your peers where you just talk about blocks. You don't talk about transactions. You don't talk about the addresses of other nodes. Another example is you. Or there are some temporary connections that are short-lived just to find other peers or check that all the nodes you know about in your address book are still alive and, and doing well. Um, another cool thing I've been able to notice is Bitcoin's got great support for privacy preserving technologies. Like I think it's common that we know that Bitcoin supports Tor, but somewhat more recently are other technologies like I2P and CJDNS, which are a little bit similar. Uh, but the biggest revelation is if you take a deeper dive into like something's like, oh, this is cool. Um, you'll notice that they come in response to Bitcoin's unique attack surface. And so to provide an example for that, we can talk about those blocks only connections I just mentioned, where you only talk to your peer about blocks and eclipse attacks. Eclipse attacks are attacks where the attacker is able to control all the information that a node sees. And they do this by isolating the node from the rest of the network. And so usually you need to have knowledge of who a node is connected to, like what their topology looks like. And so if, if you're thinking about network traffic, you realize that blocks only happen every 10 minutes. However, transactions and node addresses are gossiped about far more frequently. And then another thing is when a node gets a block, it tries to propagate it across the network as fast as it can. And that's not true for transactions. We actually try to stagger the relay a little bit in an effort to protect the original sender of the transaction and maintain some level of privacy there. And so you, connections that talk about transactions sometimes have a unique property of some kind of latency that can tip an attacker off. But when you think about like when you, when you boil it all down, you realize that blocks don't leak a lot of information about your connections, at least relative to the other connection types. So the blocks only connection type, if you've got a couple and you're under an eclipse attack, then hopefully, then one, you're still going to be getting uh, valid, honest information. And then two, you'll hopefully be tipped off that you are under attack. So I thought that was a great example of like something you see in Bitcoin. And then you, you take a look a bit further and you realize, oh, this is in re response to like a very specific kind of attack vector that you don't always see elsewhere. And when I want to just bring it back for our audience in terms of 
the attack surface of Bitcoin and the stability of Bitcoin at large, we're think we're talking about very specific Bitcoin security measures right now in terms of people's nodes and how they're in that how they're basically downloading the blockchain, right? And how they're downloading information and staying up to date with everybody else across the network. But step taking a step back, think about how impressive it is that we have this network where people across the world, thousands of nodes are actually able to stay on the same page at one time. You mentioned latency, but the latency has been reduced to seconds on a global scale for a network that is ticking the way that Bitcoin is. So talk about now just bring back the idea of alternative cryptocurrencies, aka altcoins, aka you know what coins. Tell us why why do we Bitcoin using this context of latency and uh, you know the node network and people being on the same page at the same time? How impressive is Bitcoin versus its alternatives in this specific regard? And why does it make Bitcoin the most secure digital asset that there is? Yeah, for sure. So I don't have the numbers on the altcoins, but something that is really unique about Bitcoin is the ability to run your own node. I mean, we have people, lots of people running them on little tiny Raspberry Pis. Um, now, whether or not you believe that's the best way to run a node, um, that's a whole different story. But like even you could just take your laptop and and spin up a Bitcoin node. That's, that's really all you have to do. If you prune the data, then you don't need as much disk space. Uh, for anybody that really wants the numbers, Jameson Lop every year runs a bunch of tests and he provides all his results in a blog post on how long it takes to sync nodes from other networks and nothing compares. And okay, so like, cool, we can run no, we can run Bitcoin nodes. Great. That's awesome. Um, but why do you want that? Well, in order to be truly sovereign, you know, the best case scenario is you're broadcasting your transactions through your node. You're, you're validating the blockchain through your node. Um, you're using your node as like your own little like personal computing machine to, to be your own bank. And when we, rely on other people to do that, we give up a lot of our control, especially there are certain blockchains where it's very popular to use a cloud service, but what happens when that cloud service goes down? It, or even just general cloud services go down. Um, you don't really have a backup there. You can't, it's, it's not easy enough to spin up your own nodes. So I think that is like something that really separates Bitcoin from all the others. And part of what we have to do for our audience is translate technical experts like yourself. What, what Stacy is telling us and explaining to us is that Bitcoin doesn't exist in one place. And she's explaining the technical reasons why that is the case. That makes Bitcoin a commodity. And it is important to understand Bitcoin as a commodity within the regulatory landscape because you cannot subpoena Bitcoin. And it's it's the mechanisms that Stacy is explaining to us that ensures that you can't subpoena it because we have nodes, we have a messaging service, and the nodes are easy to run relative to anything else. 
Obviously, if you wanted to run a theoretical node on the Federal Reserve, you would basically have to go to the Federal Reserve's website every day and the New York Fed's website every day and then the broader uh, website every week or every six weeks to get the decisions and the information on what's going on on that balance sheet and with that committee. That process, you can apply it to other altcoins and even then you would still either for some of them need permission to download the node, you would need some sort of, um, it, there's some sort of central point of failure, either that or it's too expensive or too much data to actually run for the regular person. So these are the reasons that Bitcoin is a commodity from explaining the software development side. People think that, why would I have to understand the software to understand that it's a commodity? But this conversation today explains to us exactly why we do need to understand the technical side to describe it as a commodity. It's not purely a financial phenomenon. It has to do with the software and the node itself. So I, I'm curious to your thoughts there. Yeah, I love that explanation. I think it bridges the like software and the financial side really nicely. And I think it kind of leads into this exercise that you can do where it's like, okay, if we want to shut down Bitcoin, how are we going to do it? And I, I, I don't, I don't know. Well, I, there's other like ways that you could try, which I will get into. Um, but what do we do? Do we say everyone who's running a Raspberry Pi node will come into your house? We're shutting it down. You better unplug them. Um, it, it's much harder to do that than for some of these more centralized altcoins that they can, the, you know, someone can just go to AWS and be like, hey, I heard you're running such and such infrastructure. Um, please shut down anything, any software that's doing that. And like, okay, like. Yeah, Bitcoin right. is not subject to uh, to subpoenas on Amazon um, yeah. and their enterprise solution. So yeah, um, yeah. talk to us about um, Taproot. And if you can explain um, just the basics for our audience, not too technical, but what is Taproot? Why was it? Why was it? Why was there so much energy in terms of trying to get it added to Bitcoin? Um, developers call it the biggest update to Bitcoin since the 2017 SegWit update. So what is Taproot? Why is it important? And what's on your radar there? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm excited about this one. So I think something that we need to keep in mind when we talk about the Taproot upgrade, which launched or went live in November, I think November 12th, 2021, um, it's actually three different BIPs. There's a lot in here. And um, so the first thing we want to unpack is the BIP 340, which is Schnorr. This is a new signature scheme. Um, it has better proofs so we can rely on the security about it more. It's a little more efficient and it's a lot easier to manipulate data in Schnorr if you take a look at like the actual math. And this opens up the door to some really interesting signing protocols that we haven't been able to do before, as well as cool things like batch signature validation. So um, there are some cryptographic operations that are very CPU intensive, and these can kind of be a bottleneck. So the fact that you can validate a bunch of cryptographic signatures in one batch instead of one at a time is really cool. And then there's also something called key aggregation that it enables where basically, let's say you have a multi-sig with keys A, B, and C. 
what you can do is just combine all those keys together and you can lock up your coins using that single combined key. So now your, your coin looks like it's being protected by a single signature. So you get some privacy benefits there, but also efficiency gains. You're just using less data and the less data you use, the less you have to pay in fees, the less block space. It's, it's a win-win. Um, when Satoshi first released Bitcoin, Schnorr was under patent, which is why Satoshi went with ECDSA. Um, another good argument, though, is Schnorr was not as battle-tested at the time, so it probably would have been irresponsible even if it was possible. Um, and an interesting thing, if you dig into the history, is you can actually find posts from prominent Bitcoin developers going all the way back to 2014, 2012, talking about either Schnorr or Schnorr-like properties and things that we could do with them. And so to say that seeing Schnorr deployed over BIP340 like is awesome is an understatement. Like it's, it's really cool. Everyone's really happy about that. The second BIP in the Taproot upgrade is Taproot itself. It's BIP341. Oftentimes when we think about Taproot, we think about a little, a literal Taproot, like a carrot with roots going down and branching into the soil. And this is basically what that BIP is. It's the tree-like data structure that allows you to define a bunch of different spending conditions for your coins, but only reveal the one that you end up using. And prior to Taproot, that wasn't the case. If you had um, uh, some coins and you wanted to attach a couple different spending conditions on it, like either you could spend them or I could spend them or a friend over here can spend them, all of that would be public to the blockchain. So the, that specific structure is called a MAST, a Merkleized Abstract Syntax Tree. Uh, and when you combine that with Schnorr, you get a lot of the privacy and the scalability wins. And then the last one is BIP342, which is TapScript. And this includes all the updates that we need to make to the Bitcoin smart contract language to support Taproot. Um, interesting and confusingly enough, the Bitcoin smart contract language is called script. You'll just see it with a capital S. So um, that's what I'm referring to. And then it also removed the legacy 10,000 byte limit on scripts, which has led to uh, some, some interesting things, including ordinals and inscriptions. Though regarding usage, I'm... I'm a little in between, like usage of Taproot in general. I, I think for something like ordinals and inscriptions, it's a natural progression because storing arbitrary data on the blockchain has always been possible. In the beginning, people were doing it by attaching it to unspendable outputs, which was a real bummer because all nodes have to maintain the UTXO set, the set of coins that haven't been spent. And so these unspendable coins were getting lumped in there. And it's like kind of like, why am I holding on to this if I know no one can ever spend it? And then in 2015, we had an opcode called op return that came along that enforced a limit, but it allowed you to store arbitrary data. And this was really great because you could full nodes could prune that data. And so yes, you had to download that data, but you could just throw it away when you were done with it. Like that didn't matter. And then, as you mentioned, SegWit came along in 2017, which introduced a new field called the witness. And that was basically an area to put all signature data. And this came with a 
weight discount, which translates basically to a 75% fee discount. And um, this, this made the idea of inscriptions cheaper. And then lastly, we have Taproot, which comes along, TapScript, um, the, the TapScript BIP uh, removes the 10K byte limit. So now instead of like spreading your inscription over several transactions, you can do it all in one. You're only limited by block space. So I don't think that we can fully credit or depending on where you stand, blame um, inscriptions on Taproot, but I don't think we'd be where we are now with ordinals and inscriptions had it not been for the help that it got from Taproot. So for my last question, I'm going to challenge you to uh, bring it bring it home for the Bitcoin layer audience and thinking about Bitcoin as a macro asset. So if we rewind six years and we think about SegWit and um, we I, and I remember the energy around SegWit was because of Lightning Network. People understood that if we got SegWit, we could get Lightning. And if we got Lightning, we could scale Bitcoin in a really special way. And that we see that happening now. And so that was right. What are you most excited on? Uh, it's a two-part question. What are you most excited on in the development um, runway for Bitcoin? We talked about potentially discussing LRay and BIP324 offline and other P2P improvements. And then you can include Taproot in that and, and Mast and Schnorr. Include all of that. So we have recent improvements and future improvements. Between all of these improvements to Bitcoin, what is it that you believe, in your opinion, is going to be the big takeaway for Bitcoin, the macro asset? How does Bitcoin improve from these technical improvements? What is the one thing, like bring it back home in what is the Lightning Network moment from what's happening now on Bitcoin development if there's anything that comes to your mind and if there's nothing that's a true world changer, what is it that excites you the most? Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's really hard to answer. I, you know, I've got three things I'm excited about. So, so one early BIP324 and uh, threshold signatures with Frost and or Roast. Um, I guess I'll kind of like go through and tell you why I'm excited about them. Threshold signature is using Frost or Roast, so these are, um, I guess, cryptographic signing protocols, uh, will allow us to do the kind of multi-signatures that are like your twos of threes or your threes of fives. Because right now, Taproot only provides native support for an N of N multi-sig, which is through a technology called NuSig. So that makes me excited because I used to work in that space. I used to work in multi-sig. Getting people to a point where they feel comfortable self-custodying, where it's secure, like that's really important to me. But that only provide that that provides privacy and scalability benefits. It allows us to use Taproot to its full potential in that scenario. Um, and while that is really important, I don't quite see that as important as a couple more fundamental things like Erlay, which is an update to the transaction relay, or yeah. It's how we relay transactions, how, how nodes tell each other about unconfirmed transactions. That has a ton of bandwidth savings. And that sounds cool. You're like, okay, my, 
my node's going to use less resources, but that means that more people can use nodes, especially in areas where they don't have great internet. It also means that your node can support more connections, which means the whole network becomes more resilient. So that's, I think that Erlay is really exciting for that reason. But then if you take it a step further, you can talk about BIP324, which is the proposal to add opportunistic encryption to Bitcoin. And some people like do a double take when they hear that because I don't think they realize that all traffic on Bitcoin is currently unencrypted. And yeah, there are a lot of problems with that. For one, you can very easily find out who is running Bitcoin just by connecting to a Bitcoin node. The protocol will respond with a very specific set of 12 bytes back to you. And then, <laughs> that's so easy for a firewall to be like, oh, I'm not going to be accepting traffic from you. Like, bye bye. Uh, so I think out of all three, BIP324 excites me the most because it's it's uh, increasing Bitcoin's resiliency in the face of censorship. And I think like at the end of the day, that's that's the thing we really need to protect is is anyone's ability to shut the network down. Phenomenal. So what what to watch for BIP324? Uh, this is a technology that encrypts the data itself in Bitcoin, allowing for a little bit more privacy. And that allows for um, more resiliency of the network. And then L-Ray, which as you describe, is something that can improve the or it can improve the uh, way that people with lower bandwidth can access the network and increase the number of nodes that they can connect to so that they're not subject to data being blocked from them or they're more easily able to access in real time what's going on on the rest of the network because that's what bitcoin is it's just a state of transactions at any given point and as long as you are on that same page as everyone else you are an equal player in the network stacy Waleko, open source bitcoin dev and educator thank you so much for joining us today at the bitcoin layer and schooling us on some of the important technicals on Bitcoin's roadmap. Thank you for having me, I had fun. All right, take care. Bye. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by Foundation Devices. Go check out Foundation's beautiful new Passport. This is a Bitcoin hardware wallet that is the easiest hardware wallet to use in the industry. It has a beautiful interface. It's open source. They have a great concierge service to get you set up. I know it can be a little intimidating to try to take Bitcoin into self-custody, but Foundation is there to hold your hand every step of the way. Go check out the Passport and make sure you use Bitcoin Layer as your promo code for $10 off.